Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello and welcome to Working, a podcast about what people do all day. I'm David Plotz. What's your name and what do you do? My name's Jeff Ennis and I'm a flight paramedic with Air Methods based out of uh, Edenton, North Carolina. And how did you become a flight paramedic? Uh, well, I worked as a ground paramedic for a 911 service in a uh, rural county for about four and a half years and uh, got a lot of good experience there and uh, some extra education and uh, I always wanted to fly and Air Methods gave me a chance. Just so we're clear, the flight paramedic is not the pilot, correct? That's correct, yeah, and the girls always want to meet the pilot. So <laughs> but uh, so we fly a typical configuration. This is the most common configuration in air medical is a pilot, a nurse, and a paramedic. And uh, we function, the medical crew members function as co-pilots, meaning that we assist in navigation and managing the radios, uh, awareness around the aircraft, those sorts of things. And we assist the pilot in all his, you know, flight deck duties, but we do not actually typically touch the controls of the aircraft. I don't fly at all. So let's talk about a, a typical day. I take it you don't work nine to five Monday to Friday, first of all. Uh, most certainly not. I work a 24-hour shift. Uh, our schedule is I work 24 on, 24 off, and then 24 on, and then I'm off for five days. And sometimes I'll pick up a couple shifts at local 911 services during that time. 
and what time does a 24-hour shift start? Does it start in the morning, afternoon, evening, or does that vary? It starts at 7 in the morning. And what do you do when you get in at 7 in the morning? So actually, my day uh, doesn't start when I get there at 7 in the morning. It starts the day before. The flying is mentally and physically exhausting. Um, and so there's a lot of prep work that I do the day before. I prepare good meals. Uh, I prep cook things to cook at the base. Uh, what do we actually do? I come in, and the very first thing we do is we meet with the offcoming crew. Uh, we talk to them about uh, how their shift went, if they had any flights, if there were any issues with the aircraft, if there's any equipment that needs to be replaced on the aircraft, those sorts of things. And uh, then we will proceed to do the shift narcotics count, uh, and then the off the, the off-going crew is free to leave. You've done your narcotics check. The previous crew has left. So then what happens? All right. So at that point, uh, we will go out to the aircraft, and uh, if there's any uh, equipment that the other crew has used that hasn't been replaced, we will replace that. But we have a, a checkoff sheet, a pretty extremely detailed checkoff sheet, but we'll check, you know, all the drugs that are on the aircraft, any equipment that needs to be replaced going out of date, make sure that everything is there because the off-going crew, you know, they may have been tired at the end of their flight, you know, mistakes get made, they maybe forgot to replace something. And so we, we try to have systems of checks and redundancies so that we're not relying on any, you know, single point of failure. And what's the aircraft you guys fly? The aircraft we fly is a, an Airbus EC-135P2. Uh, it's a twin-engine, medium-lift aircraft. Um, has a travel speed of, uh, give or take, 150 miles an hour. And um, we can carry one patient uh, in it, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous twin-engine aircraft, all the bells and whistles. But the pilot, so when he comes in in the morning, he will do uh, a walk around on the aircraft. He'll check all the things that the pilot's checked to make sure it's ready to fly. Um, he'll also uh, complete uh, what we call a risk assessment form. So how, how do you actually get to work? How does work happen? Or does work not necessarily happen? Could you just be sitting around? Yeah. So um, the, uh, the pilot then at that point will come in and he'll do a crew brief. This is usually while some of us are cooking breakfast. Uh, but we'll sit around together and uh, he will go through the risk assessment and he'll talk about uh, – He'll review emergency procedures with us. We'll make sure that, you know, we've all gotten plenty of rest. Um, we know what's going on. We'll talk about what the weather's going to be like that day, uh, if there are any uh, advisories in the area. For example, if the president's landing somewhere, you know, that might mean that we could fly in with a patient, but we couldn't leave, which, you know, that's not a problem. A lot of times uh, that period of time in the in the mid-morning, like, you know, 8 to noon is sometimes our not busiest time, you know, we, that we tip, typically have the lowest call volume during that time. So personally, I usually try to grab a nap then. Um, but my partner says you got to sleep when the baby sleeps, and I firmly believe in that. Um, I'll try to bank some sleep, and that came from my time in EMS because you, you sleep when you can. And uh, I'll usually try to get a couple hours of sleep then, and that way if we had to go till morning the next day, I've had a little bit of rest. I'm not so exhausted. Then we get up, and uh, we always have um, – ongoing education. It'll be, you know, computer courses, training. Uh, these things are assigned to us and, and made available to us. Okay. So you've had your continuing education. Um, is a call Is a call coming? Yeah. Is there a call coming? Oh, yeah. Okay. So there's a call coming. Yeah. We're waiting on the phone to ring. All right. So we do uh, two different types of transports. Um, and that is both scene where, let's say, an ambulance calls us to go 
meet them somewhere, or a hospital calls us to pick up a patient and take them from one hospital to another hospital. And those are two totally different things. And that's why I say even the very best paramedic, when you show up, at best, you've only got about 40% of the picture because you know the pre-hospital stuff, the scene call stuff, uh, but the nurse, that's where their expertise is, is in the inter-facility stuff. So that's why they pair us together. Um, so we'll talk about um, scene calls because that's my expertise and what I'm more interested in. Uh, what will happen is uh, let's say somebody gets hurt, somebody gets sick, and they call 911, and the paramedics show up, and they say, uh, this patient's really sick, they've got a time-sensitive injury or illness, and they need to go to a regional trauma center, a stroke center, a cardiac cath lab, that sort of thing. Uh, those things, once you get out of the cities, are not available. Uh, there are eight of those centers in North Carolina. That's pretty typical, and there is a lot of empty space in between those. And what Air Medical allows us to do is about two-thirds of the U.S. population has access within one hour to getting to a trauma center uh, within an hour of their injury. So what happens is this person's in an accident or they're in their home and something happens, and they're, so always there's an ambulance that's gotten there before you, and they, they make a decision like we are need air medical because this person has to get to a trauma center faster than we can possibly do it. Yeah, and it, it doesn't always even have to be the ambulance. Sometimes the first responders, the firefighters, may show up to a car wreck and they said, this is bad, we need some help, or we've got more patients than we can manage here with the resources available. Uh, but, yeah, one of the first responders, one of the ambulances uh, will call us, and uh, so we'll get in route. So what they do is they'll call, they'll get on the radio to their dispatch center, and they'll say, we need Air Mobile 2 from Edenton to meet us at the airport, at the hospital, whatever our predetermined LZ is. And uh, they'll say, okay, we'll, uh, we'll call and check with them. They will call our dispatch center. So I just realized, yeah, so you're not landing on the middle of the highway. The ambulance or the paramedics on the scene have to get to somewhere where there's landing. Not necessarily. Um, if there's a wreck, you know, out here in the middle of the interstate, uh, we could certainly, you know, if it's safe to do so. And the we spend a lot of time training first responders to look for obstacles, wires and stuff. That is almost impossible to spot from the air during the day, much less at night, even when you're on MVGs. Very hard to spot those things. Um, but if we're going to a predetermined LZ, that makes things a lot simpler. We know where it is already. We know how to get there, and we know that it's, you know, relatively secure. So that's going to be a safer place to land. Uh, but it's not always. Sometimes we do land on the highway. Yeah. So uh, take us through um, an interesting one that you've had recently. Okay. So recently uh, we got a call from uh, a uh, county to uh, come and meet them. And we got no information from the patient about the patient at all. And that happens sometimes. We're just going into this blind. We don't even know how much he weighs. And um, uh, so we're on our way. And uh, we get a call back. I tune in to the radio to their local EMS channel so I can talk to them. And I hear them tell their dispatch center that they have changed their destination from the LZ to the local hospital. That's never a good sign because that tells us that the patient is probably not stable enough to transport at that time. They wouldn't be going to the hospital if they were stable enough to wait for us to get there to take them to where they really need to go because little hospitals typically can't fix whatever's fundamentally wrong with them. Um, so we said, all right, that's no problem. We'll meet you there. Can I, can, let me just interrupt you before you even get further. First of all, how did you decide, okay, we do take this call? And second of all, how quickly are you in the air? 
All right, so they'll call um, <clears throat> our dispatch center. Will call the pilot, and he'll say they'll tell them we have a request to go to this county, and they won't tell them anything about what it is because you don't want, you know, if it's a three-year-old kid uh, versus you know an elderly person, then the pilot's emotions could factor into that and they might be inclined to do something that they otherwise wouldn't. And we don't want that emotional factor. So we don't get any information about the patient on the ground. They'll just say, can you go to this, this place? Uh, so that whole procedure to get it up and running and up us off the ground, typically eight minutes or so would be, you know, about right, maybe a little less, uh, but about eight minutes. And at that point we're in the air and we are headed towards our call. And, um, so back to the call where we're going, um, we land uh, at the local hospital, and uh, uh, we grab all of our equipment, put that on the stretcher, we go into the hospital. Um, we walked into the hospital this day, and there's no one around, no one at all. They're all somewhere. And we're, like, looking around, and I hear some frantic activity in the back room. And uh, we walk in, and what I see is a, uh, a young man. Uh, he's immobilized on a backboard. He's, he's laying on the bed there. Uh, there's a flurry of activity around him, and we still have no information at all. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, so I walk in, and uh, I say, hey, my name's Jeff. This is Damien. Uh, can you guys tell us what's going on? And they say, we're not exactly sure what happened. Uh, we think he was running from the police one witness said that he ran into a parked car. Another witness said that he just fell down uh, in the road unconscious, um, and that's all we know. And so the paramedics got there. They picked him up, and uh, they got him in the back of the ambulance, and he went into cardiac arrest. His heart stopped. The paramedics, uh, they intubated the patient. They placed a breathing tube into the patient's throat. They did CPR on the patient, and they got a pulse back. And uh, so that is all the information that we have, and he's just laying there on the bed. So I walk in to do uh, a patient assessment, and uh, my partner says, hey, did you just knock a lead off, meaning did I accidentally disconnect the cardiac monitor? And uh, I said, no. And he said, have you got a pulse? And uh, I was like, no. We're like, well, start CPR. Okay. So I literally walked in and touched the patient, and he coded into cardiac arrest. So we began CPR on the patient, and uh, we administered uh, a drug called epinephrine, which is adrenaline. And uh, we managed to, to get the patient back again with a pulse. And so at that point, I'm looking for the cause. Something is causing this to happen. And if we don't figure out what it is, you know, we're not going to be able to stop this from happening again. This is at a tiny ED, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. This guy probably doesn't typically see patients that are this sick because they shouldn't even be at this hospital. And uh, so more often than not, the doctors are comfortable uh, letting us do whatever it is that we need. The nurses will give us whatever we ask for, uh, you know, in the way of the epinephrine. Uh, we ask for a dopamine drip, those sorts of things. They're there uh, at that point. They're typically very supportive of whatever it is that we're trying to do because this is our specialty. You know, this is the kind of patient that we deal with. And uh, so they, they tend to let us do our thing. So with our patient, we, we managed to get him back, and I continue with my assessment. And this is getting really puzzling because there are just a few things uh, that will cause a patient to arrest like this, traumatic things, um, that can be fixed. Uh, there aren't very many. Like, we can't figure out what's wrong with this guy. I can't find any obvious trauma on him. doesn't seem like he's hit his head that hard. You know, when I don't know what's going on, when I get confused or, or don't know what to do next, I go back to my ABCs. This is what we learned in EMT school airway, breathing, circulation. I look at the basics and say, okay, 
he's got an airway. We're breathing for him. Uh, we're working on his circulation. And that's all we can do for this patient at this point. And we are not going to solve this problem right here, right now. I don't have the tools to do it. This is going to require, you know, an advanced facility. So at that point, uh, we want to transfer the patient uh, to our monitor. Uh, we're going to hook up the ventilator and begin breathing for the patient, um, make sure all that's managed. And uh, so that's, that's when we would transfer the patient to our bed. So from the time you took off from, from the base, when did you land at the hospital, and how long are you in that hospital before you're bringing him back out to your aircraft? Okay, we like to, uh, so it took us about eight minutes to get to this place. Uh, in this case, we walked in, worked a code, you know, got the patient on the on the ventilator, the monitor, everything else, and, and you know, troubleshooted all the horses that we could think of, and still got to the aircraft and off the ground in 18 minutes. Uh, so we do everything, and we do it fast. Wait, so when you get back in the aircraft... Is one of you sitting with the pilot? Or are you both back with the patient? So uh, when we're going to a scene, one of us sits up front with the pilot and functions as a co-pilot. But when we have a patient on board, both of us are in the back with the patient, and that's where most of our attention is focused. And how big is that space? What does it look like? <laughs> it's a small space. And uh, we actually have a, a relatively luxurious aircraft, but it's uh, it's about the size of well, it doesn't help. <laughs> it's about the size of this table. Uh, a very small closet. Um, and uh, some a lot of people fly aircraft that are smaller than ours. But uh, the patient will sit with or will lay, you know, on the stretcher with his head um, near uh, one of our laps so that we are there and can manage the patient's airway. And the other provider uh, can get alongside the patient, administer drugs through an IV, those sorts of things. Um, but we need to have uh, a good assessment done in any IVs, those sorts of things. We try to have that done before we get in the aircraft uh, because everything's much more difficult in the aircraft. And, you know, we can't listen to lung sounds, for example, is another thing. A lot, Everything's more difficult. So how do you decide where you are then taking this patient? Has, is the hospital you're going to decide it or you guys make a decision? Uh, usually if it's an inner facility call, then that has already been arranged. Uh, for scene calls, we are typically going to go to what we call the closest appropriate facility. And that is uh, the facility that, you know, is going to have the, you know, surgical capabilities or the cath lab or the stroke center, whatever it is, the specific needs for this patient. If it's a burn patient, a badly burned patient or a pediatric patient, we might by bypass the closest trauma center and take them to a pediatric special facility like Duke University, but it's the closest appropriate facility. And how far could you go? The rule of thumb is about 150 miles. Uh, that could be more or less. Usually we wouldn't have to go that far. Uh, we have picked up some burn patients on the Outer Banks that needed to go to Chapel Hill, and that's probably pushing 200 miles, which is generally further than you want to go in a rotor wing. Uh, usually if you get over 150, you won't use a fixed wing aircraft, but we do what's right for the patients and what's available, you know. You had a facility you were going to. What happened then? Uh, so we get in the aircraft with the patient. We get him secured and uh, look down, and his blood pressure is 50 over 30, and he is fixing to code again. And uh, at that point, we had already asked the hospital to uh, 
prepare a dopamine drip, which is a drug that will cause uh, your blood pressure to go up and your heart beat a little harder and a little faster. Um, and we already had that prepared. We connected that to an IV pump in the aircraft and uh, began administering that infusion to the patient. And that, along with you know IV fluids and oxygen, uh, was enough to stabilize that patient's vital signs. And we monitor that very closely. Too much or too little is a big problem, and you have to titrate it uh, to the effects. So we're monitoring that blood pressure continuously as we're doing this. Do you know the patient's name? Do you ha- think about... Do you have? Are you responsible for making sure families notified, or is that totally a different department? Uh, yeah, I don't think about that stuff at all. Um, I maintain uh, some barrier of, of impersonality between me and the patient, and it's not because I'm cold or because I don't care. It's because it's what enables me to do what I do. So I don't think about his name. The hospital did give us a face sheet as we were going out the door, so I had his name on a piece of paper. Um, and once again, I want to emphasize it's not because I don't care. It's it's because I have to maintain uh, the ability to think objectively and to think clearly about what's happening. And moreover, i got to be ready to go on the next call when I get back to the base. So in this case, uh, what then happened? Uh, so I get on the radio, and uh, after we get his vitals stabilized, uh, everything looks pretty good. And uh, I call uh, the uh, trauma center, and I send a trauma alert, which was a little <laughs> a little awkward because I'm like, well, we can't find out exactly what the trauma is, but we're pretty sure there must be some, and uh, we're going to need all hands on deck when we get there, and we'll be there in about five minutes. And uh, at that point, you know, they'll have everybody, they'll put their gowns on, they're waiting on us with all their equipment ready to rock when we walk in the door so there's no delay. Um, and the pilot will talk to us at that point. He'll say, do you want to do this hot or cold? And what that means is with the aircraft running continuously or uh, are we going to take a minute and shut it down? And generally, if it's super time sensitive uh, or a relatively simple patient, we'll do it hot. Uh, In this case, we had the ventilator going, we had the IV pumps going. And yeah, you can do that hot, but it makes things a little easier for everybody if you shut it down because when we walk to the back of the aircraft, you're standing between two jet engines. And I'm sorry, everybody's IQ drops 30 points when you get back there. It's just you know the nature of the beast. Uh, so it makes things a little easier. Uh, less mistakes get made if we shut it down, which is what we did. And uh, took our time getting the patient in uh, to make sure we don't make any mistakes. So when we walk into the trauma bay, uh, there will be a huge group of people looking at us. They'll have a bed laying there uh, with a big light shining down on it. And uh, usually the attending surgeon will say, okay, start talking. And at that point, this is something I had to get used to. You're not giving report to any particular person. You're giving report to everybody. And they'll say, okay. And then they'll take over at that point. And generally it's the the trauma residents there in the ER, the students, and they're going down and they'll say, okay, left leg is clear. Okay, this, you know, chest is, uh, you know, solid. Um, And they'll be talking out loud as they're going through the whole procedure, um, looking for, you know, fixable causes of what's happening. And at that point, uh, I will make sure that a good and thorough report is given and uh, make sure to answer any questions of the team if they have any. Uh, but that's usually the point at which it's time for me to you know, step back and take a breath and kind of rethink everything that's going on and try to think if I've missed anything or, or is there anything I can add that's going to be meaningful uh, to this process. But it's the care of the patient's out of my hands at that point. So once the patient is handed off like that, are you, you guys are done? Uh, more or less. So I'll, I'll take a step back and, like I said, rethink everything. Um, I'll get a couple signatures uh, from the staff uh, to certify that they received the patient. I actually did what I said and brought them there. If, if there's a chart involved, 
I'll make a copy of it and uh, uh, leave a copy there with the receiving facility and take a, a chart back for, for my charting purposes. And do you know what happened with this patient? Uh, we just managed the ABCs, which is all that's called for. Um, I'm afraid in, in that particular case uh, that that patient's injuries were probably too severe uh, for his brain to survive. Now, that being said, he's a young man in good health. He's got a heart. He's got two lungs. He's got two kidneys. He's got a liver, which is enough to treat two patients. And uh, he was an organ donor. And so because the paramedics on scene and the hospital and we managed that patient, you know, aggressively through the end, um, he was a viable organ donor and that could potentially go on and save seven more lives. So sometimes even if you can't save the patient in front of you, you might save seven more, you know, that aren't. Now, maybe you don't think about this at all, but at what point do you think, you know, this guy is not going to live? Do you, do you even think about that? Or you just, you can't afford to think about that? Um, in a way, it doesn't matter. Uh, because a lot of that is decided before I ever got there. You know, I didn't cause that person to have that aneurysm in his brain. I didn't cause his injury. What's at stake is if I do everything I can do to help that person. So I'm going to show up and I'm going to do my job and do it professionally and make sure that I don't miss anything. Um, and if I do all those things, then the outcome is out of my hands and I'm able to sleep at night knowing that I did the best I could. Now, that being said, um, we are advancing tremendously in medicine, and now uh, they do things what's called a therapeutic hypothermia. So on a patient like that, uh, they will actually cool that patient. Have you ever heard of these kids that fall through the ice, and they're underwater for like an hour, and then they come back, they warm them up, and they're, they, they survive? So there are patients surviving to discharge now who 10 years ago never would have, and what they do, they chill them down. And they maintain uh, those patients at a cold temperature for two or three days, and that allows their body in that injured state uh, to operate at a at a reduced metabolic requirements. Who's paying? How are you getting paid from all of that? What's the economics that allows you to take this trip and and do this? Uh, I know very little about the business of it. <laughs> I'm I'm a clinical person, and I'm fortunate that uh, Air Methods uh, they mostly give me the tools that I need to do my job and uh, they don't pressure me much about business or those sorts of things. But in, in a general sense, uh, typically patients have uh, insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, uh, private insurance, and uh, we would, you know, file uh, a claim with insurance on behalf of those patients. And even if that claim's denied, we will uh, we'll appeal it and, and pursue those things. Uh, and that's how they get the reimbursements. But you're never, there's never a situation where you're in the air and you're like, no insurance, we got to drop this guy. Never, absolutely not. And that is, I believe that healthcare is fundamentally human right. I, I, I'm here to help people. I'm here to save lives, and that's what I want to do. And uh, fortunately, uh, my employer methods has never placed any. They've never even asked that question. We don't ask that question. So, um, so that's a pretty. That was a pretty exciting, dramatic, and and sad patient you you talked about. Do you have one of those a day? Is that five of those a day? How, how, for, first of all, how often do you get a call, and, and is there a pattern to what they are? There is no pattern. It is absolutely, if you ever start to think you've got it figured out, the only thing I've ever found that, that might have any correlation at all is when I start trying to grill in the evening. That Sometimes that'll set it off. 
but it's feast or famine. Sometimes we'll go a day or two and I'll have a call. Uh, sometimes they'll have four in one day. Uh, I can tell you that, uh, you know, doing more than two really takes a lot out of you. It's, it's tremendously exhausting uh, work. Uh, you wouldn't think that it would be. Uh, but there are, you know, what we call stressors of flight. The aircraft vibrates. It's loud. The vibration inhibits your ability to sweat. Uh, the Nomex suits that we wear are uh, are hot, you know. The vibration inhibits your ability to sweat? Yeah, the, the, the aircraft vibrates. It's not sm- not smooth like a commercial airliner, and uh, that does actually inhibit the ability to sweat. There are all sorts of things. For example, the rotor blades passing over. Have you ever been driving and seen sunlight coming through the trees, and it flickers, and it kind of makes you feel sort of funny? That's called flicker vertigo. That can actually induce seizures, but more typically, it's just a really uncomfortable feeling. And so, you know, we wear our visors down, and I try to keep my eyes down on sunny days. You don't want to be looking up through the rotor system um, because, you know, I have a seizure, <laughs> you know. But uh, there, there are all all sorts of things. The fact that you're cramped in this tiny space, you don't really have any good support. You're wearing a helmet, which you can't rest against the bulkhead or anything because it'll just tatter your teeth out of your head. Uh, you're having you know, to position yourself constantly and use all your body's muscles, and you don't think about it at the time, but when you walk, you get back, you know, you're beat. Like You're ready to get something to eat and take a nap if possible, for sure. Just uh, so you, Again, you told us about a, one particular case, but over the last, think of, think of your last six shifts what what were what's the variety of things that you dealt with over that period uh that is something that's uh, very specific to the basis the mix of patients that we have um we have typically uh uh scene calls mostly that come from the local ems systems and uh the patient uh, before this one was uh, i had a patient who was suffering an acute stroke um it was uh that patient had a uh, Something very interesting, and that's what goes back. I told you I was studying neurology that day. Well, I go out and I see this patient, and uh, he has facial drooping. He's unable to move one side of his body, and he has what we call expressive aphasia, which means I'm speaking to him, and he's able to demonstrate he understands what I'm saying, but he can't speak, and uh, that's called Broca's aphasia or expressive aphasia. Very interesting. Uh, that's pretty simple presentation. That patient just needs to get to a trauma or a stroke center as quickly as possible, which is what we did for him. Uh, I had a patient on the outer banks who uh, had an unfortunate incident. His hand went into a table saw, and he was, because of his location, would have been four and a half hours by ground to get to a trauma center, and we were able to get him to you know a surgical facility in 32 minutes. Do you ever see these patients again? Do, you, do they ever... Do you ever hear back from patients, or do you really just have this very fast and impersonal relationship that doesn't uh, lead to anything else? It's mostly more of the latter. It's uh, it's it's unusual that we hear back. More often, I will hear about it from the local county EMSs. Sometimes I work part-time shifts with them, help them out a little bit. And those are the folks that really know the people in their area. And they know what happens. You know, these are small towns. And they'll say, you know, oh, you know, she she made a full recovery. She was discharged from the hospital three days later or, you know, unfortunately didn't make it. Um, Typically, I'll hear that from those guys. How old are you, Jeff? I'm 32. Is this a kind of job that you can do until you're 65, or is this is this a young man's, young person's job? I'd like to think it's something that I can do. We've got pilots that are older than that. They flew in Vietnam, uh, and they are still 100% on their game. 
Uh, and so uh, I I fully intend to do it until I can't do it anymore. There's nothing else that I've ever wanted to do. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. On the next show, I'm going to talk to Danae Sewell, who's a child care professional here in Washington, D.C. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money.